The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran From Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plaincrazydownunder.com. For great coverage of the Kiwi warbird, restoration and aviation scene, we like to listen to Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today I'm joined by Vic J. Hi Vic, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, we're going to be talking today about your new book, which is called The Melon Crew. That's right. Tell me, uh, what the, the book's about uh, your father's crew. It's the crew of uh, RNZRF pilot Bill Mellon, who flew Avro Lancasters with 75 Squadron RAF uh, during World War Two. That's right, isn't it? That's right, yeah, from RAF Meeple in Cambridgeshire. Right, and your father was Robert J, or better known as Bob J, uh, who was the flight engineer on the crew. That's right, yeah. So, tell me, to start with, what inspired you to write the book about your father and his crew? It's um, it's really an incredible story. Um, when I was a, a small boy, uh, I, I was fascinated by what my dad had done in the war, because uh, he still had his uh, RAF uniform in the cupboard, um, his medals arrived when I was little. Um, I got really involved in um, finding out as much as I could about Lancaster bombers. Uh, made an airfix model of a Lancaster with the help of my dad. Um, but I think once I'd got to secondary school age or maybe younger, um, that the interest just waned. And as the years went by after the war, um, I think I just became busy with school, and then when I left school, uh, busy with work, family, um, and never really thought very much, as, as very few people did in those days, about what had happened during the war and what my dad had done. 
Um, and sadly, my dad died when I was in my mid-20s. Oh, um, right. And it never occurred to me that uh, I would want to find out more about what he'd done in the war um, until 40 years later in 2012. And uh, my wife treated me to uh, a taxi run on a Lancaster bomber, which uh, uh, is based at uh, RAF East Kirkby in Lincolnshire. Ah, oh, right, of course. Uh, that'll be just Jane, won't it? That's right. Um, and I mean, it was the, the, the weather was terrible. It rained all day. But just to climb into a Lancaster bomber, um, after all those years, after talking to my dad about it, it was just such an emotional experience. Oh, I'll bet, I'll bet. And that, that's sort of got the cogs going in your head about wanting to know more about what your, what your father had done. Yeah, that was the inspiration, really. I, I spoke to a few other chaps who were uh, looking around the aircraft, and, uh, um, and as we stood in the cockpit and they fired up those Merlin engines, it was just... Uh, well, the, the, the chap I was standing next to, his dad had been a pilot, and uh, he'd only died a few months earlier. Right. The, the tears were streaming down his face, and it made me feel really emotional. Uh, and, and the aircraft rolled across the tarmac onto the grass, and uh, uh, I mean the sound of the engines was just something I'd not, I, I, I couldn't envisage before. And that really, I mean that was it, Dave. It just triggered um, the interest all over again, and I, I became determined to find out what I could. I mean my expectations were not very high. I expected to find out a little bit about his flight engineer training. Um, a little bit about where he was based, maybe the names of his crewmates, the only one I was aware of, which I remembered from being a, a child, my dad mentioning mentioning Bill Mallon, uh, and I can remember asking my dad if he ever thought he'd see him again, but of course uh, in the 1950s New Zealand could have been on another planet, it was, there was no, <laughs> no communication at all. Right, right. And I think like a lot of other chaps that the war was over and they wanted to get on with their family lives. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So how did you go about going from that stage where you're sitting in the Lancaster, it's running its engines, and you're getting all emotional? How did that become the fact that you were going to write a book? Well, it was. It took, um, well, as I said, the, the, my expectations were not very high. So I, yeah. I, I went home, I sent off for my dad's service record. I did have his logbook, which was, which was key, because that told me, uh, where he was based and which which squadron he was with. Right. Um, and when I got his service record, while I was waiting for the service record, I uh, trolled the internet for information on 75 New Zealand Squadron and RAF Meeple. Uh, and I came across some really useful websites. And I have to mention um, Wings Over New Zealand because it, oh, right, yeah. that was one of the keys. Um, the other one was the 75 Squadron... Um, blog that Simon Somerville uh, produced, had been producing since his dad died about five, five, six years ago. Right, right, yes. And he put me in touch with a chap called Pete Tresedern, who runs a, his, his partner's um, mother's dad was killed in the war, and she never knew anything at all about it, and, he'd, and he was a flight engineer, and uh, uh, he was called Cyril Butler, and... Uh, he was Pete was able to give me all the information I needed without having to do any research of my own on flight engineer training. So that was a big help. So when I start, what I started to do, Dave, was to write a blog uh, with all this information. As it came to light, I added it yep. to the blog. And it, the idea was that the family members that my dad never knew would be able to read about what he did and learn a little bit more about him because uh, all, right. all his grandchildren were born after he died, uh, my wife didn't even meet my dad, so uh, there right. were quite a few people who didn't know very much about him. But from then on, things just started to, to, to roll um, very quickly. Oh, yes, Simon Somerville let me have a copy of the, um, the Squadron's Operations Record book, and that told me the names of the crew. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, which, which you know, each of each month, as as the months went by, uh, things turned up which really blew me away. I have to admit, very early on, when I tried through the Wings Over New Zealand forum to 
find out about Bill Mallon because what I noticed from the logbook was that he was replaced with another pilot. Um, All right. And th that was a bit of a mystery, but uh, the, f the first tragedy that un was uncovered in the research was the tragedy that happened to Bill Mallon's family. Oh, what was that? Uh, what what um, I, ha I had a vague feeling that Bill had lost one of his brothers. I think my brother told me that he remembered my dad saying that, that uh, one of Bill's brothers was killed in the war uh, and he'd had to go home early because of that. Yeah. Uh, but it transpired that uh, in 1940, uh, the middle brother of the three brothers, uh, Tom, Jack and Bill, uh, Jack was killed in 1940. Uh, he was um, he was with um, number 53 Squadron RAF. Uh, and he crashed in northern France during the Battle of Britain. All oh, right. Uh, flying with Coastal Command. Um, and then I discovered that shortly after Bill and my dad and the rest of the crew were posted to RAF Meeple in 1945, March 1945, Bill got the news that his eldest brother, Tom, had been killed in the Netherlands uh, okay. flying uh, a Mosquito with 488 New Zealand Squadron. And, oh, right, okay. I mean, that was, uh, first of all, I never expected to find out anything very much about the crew at all. But to find out something as uh, dramatic as that was uh, amazing. Yeah, and so did he get taken home because he was the last son left? Yeah, he said, uh, uh, yes, he, his, his family asked if he could have compassionate posting back to New Zealand. Uh, right. Bill's position was that he... He would accept a compassionate posting, but only if he went straight home. Uh, he didn't want just to be put on ground duty and uh, kick his heels. He'd been kicking his heels for about three years since he joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Um, there was a, a surplus of pilots in in the pipeline, and uh, he waited a long time to become operational. Right. Um, so, it, yeah, um, he was posted back to New Zealand after the war had ended, it turned out, I mean, he from applying for compassionate posting to actually receiving it, he, he flew his eight operations during those two months. And I mean, there could have been another tragedy because they, I mean, they had a couple of near misses. Oh, OK. And of course, we should say there that uh, the tour for this crew began in March 1945. So he was quite late in the European war anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's that. when I said my expectations weren't very high when I started the project, part of the reason was, first of all, I didn't think it would be very easy to find out the information that I wanted. But secondly, because my dad had only become operational in... They were posted to Meeple on the 6th of March, 1945, and the war ended, as you know, on the, in Europe anyway, on the 8th of May. So they yes. only had two months, and I, and I must admit, I, I felt, well, my dad did a bit, but it wasn't a lot. But since since I've gone into what they actually did um even one operation was something that would have uh, would have frightened the life out of me oh absolutely <laughs> yeah absolutely so what did you find out about the rest of the crew members who were the other crew members um before before i mention the other crew members i'll just uh, explain why this project was so successful in finding information that there were two key ingredients one was i discovered very early on uh, when i was put in touch with Bill's two sons, Barry and Kevin Mullen. I discovered that Bill had given an interview in 2004, I think, to okay. the uh, New Zealand Defence Force Oral History Project. And they'd obviously right. set out to try and find out as much as they could by talking to veterans uh, what, what happened to them during the war, their personal experiences. And I, th I think it was something like a six hour interview that Bill had given for, about his life as a little boy in New Zealand during the Depression, right through to um, after the war. Right. And the, de and, uh, the, the New Zealand Defence Force sent me a transcript of that interview. And it just had the mo most amazing amount of information right back to um, Bill's experiences um, growing up, going to school, youngsters coming to school on horseback, some in bare feet. Uh, yep really fast and what his dad did and 
just just lots and lots of fascinating human interest information. Uh, so it, in the end, the book wasn't just about aircraft. And I must admit, I'm not an aircraft enthusiast, much as I, I love the Lancaster bomber and have become more interested. But this human side of the story was what really drew me in. Okay. Uh, the other thing that um, that made the, the story so successful was the letters that uh, the cruise navigator sent home. Uh, the navigator was Jim Hayworth and his daughter Ruth, um, who was born be before her dad went away uh, to the war. Uh, she let me have copies of all the letters that Jim had written to her mum. Oh, okay. And again, they I mean, Jim was a real, uh, a real comic. I mean, he, some of the letters are so amusing. And the, I, I don't know if you've seen. I think you may have seen the poem that he wrote um, from the position of a navigator. This the, the poem I've sent to a few people, and they said it's one of the best wartime po poems that they've read. It, it's about a navigator, and it, it's got a lot of uh, technical terminology in it. But uh, really amusing, nevertheless. And uh, the letters to Sally, his wife, uh, give details of what was happening to the crew. Uh, it describes when my dad joined the crew. So that gave me a personal interest. Yep. Um, so all of that information was just so valuable. And uh, by this stage, after 18 months or so, I still hadn't, hadn't even thought about writing a book. This was all putting it into the blog for, for the family, really. Right. So Jim Hayworth was a navigator. Um, Ken Philp was the bomb aimer. Yep. Uh, he was from Wellington. Um, and again, uh, one of the key ingredients of this story is the tragedies that were linked to the crew, because quite late on in the project, I, I discovered that uh, Ken uh, had a brother who was also a pilot, Gibson Philp. Um, that he was flying with 486 New Zealand Squadron, uh, flying typhoons, and they were attacking the rocket um, bases in northern France. Yep. Um, and he was killed on the 14th of January 1944. So when oh, the right. when the Malin crew got together, the pilot and the bomb aimer between them had lost three brothers. Wow. Um, the um, the wireless operator. Um, was Frank Symes. He was, I think he was only 20 when he joined the crew. Um, he was, um, and they, again, talking about tragedies, uh, Frank died when he was 55, exactly the same age as my dad. Oh, right. So, so most of his family, and yeah, that's quite a large family, most of his family didn't really know him very well. Warren, his grandson, knew him when he was a little boy, but doesn't remember a lot about him. Uh, but Warren's been really helpful to me as well. Uh, the two gunners, uh, one was Dennis Ainstone, he was the rear gunner, he was only 19 or 20 when he joined the crew, um, and I, I managed to trace him in, he came from Oxfordshire, but uh, was living in, he died just before I started the project, um, but I managed to trace uh. his daughter, Wendy, and she gave me lots of fascinating, fascinating information. Dennis had been an observer of the Battle of Britain over the southern counties of England, when he was a 14-year-old boy, and he'd, right. he'd become fascinated and started to draw aircraft, uh, flying and uh, having dogfights. Uh, and uh, Wendy sent me those drawings, and some of them are in the book as well, and, and they're all in the blog. Right. The final, the final member of the crew, and this is the big frustration, this is, this is a four-and-a-half-year project, uh, but the final member of the crew, Don Cook, uh, I think he was born in London. Uh, he was 19 uh, when he joined the crew, and I haven't been ha been able to trace him. I've even spent money on a people tracing agency to try and trace him, but um, no luck. I mean, he was young enough for him still to be alive, yeah. but I would have liked to have traced his family at least, so he so they could see what the story is like. I remember you were trying to trace him uh, through the forum and looking for any lead you could, but unfortunately Cook is such a, a common name, isn't it? So um, really difficult to find someone with such a common name like that. Yes, that, that, that was the problem the agency had, that they were able to find, uh, I think, 15 Don Cooks that were born in the south of England 
in the years 1924 to 1925, which would have been Don's birth years, but follow, finding anything out about any of them uh, after that. And I sent out quite a, a few letters to people that I thought might be uh, related, but uh, but no luck. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully he might come across the book and, and contact you afterwards, because he could, as you say, he could still be out there alive. So... Um... That would be good, but it's a bit too late for the, for the book, of course. Yeah, um, the amazing thing is that the book was published in November, and uh, the, the stories have continued to evolve since November. Right. Talking about Don Cook, I didn't manage to trace Don Cook, but what was a real, a real um, highlight of the whole project uh, occurred last year when... Um, I received an email from a chap in near Blackpool um, and he said that he had a friend who was mentioned in my blog uh, and he would like to find out more about him because he'd been awarded the DFC and he was trying to, uh, to get some publicity for this chap and it turned out that this chap was uh, Charles Frederick Green who had flown with the Mallon crew on their first three operations. Oh, all right. He was um, he'd, he'd completed a full tour uh, in 1943-44. He then had what he described as six months kicking his heels, uh, and then he'd gone to um, another air base and trained as a mid undergunner because, as you probably know, they were fitting some of the Lancasters with an undergun uh, right. to protect them from attacks from beneath. Um, they were a larger caliber gun than the. Uh, 303s, they were a, a .5 caliber gun uh, and Charles had been trained and then posted to Meeple and his job really was to fly with any crew that happened to be assigned an aircraft with an undergun. Oh right, okay. Uh, and uh, so in my book I had listed the crew and I'd listed a few crew members, well a few airmen who were not actually crew members but one that had, Charles who'd flown on three operations uh, another airman had flown on one operation when Ken Philp was injured. Uh, and then there was the other crew that my dad flew one operation with when their flight engineer was not available. So I had these other names in the book, but not very much about uh, Charles. And then the mo most amazing thing, I, I was able to travel over to Blackpool in December, just before Christmas, and meet Charles and, and spend the day with him. Right. Okay. Brilliant. And I, that was just a real uh, bonus because I, I didn't expect to find out as much as I did about the crew, and I certainly didn't expect to meet one of them. No, no. Well, I mean, that's incredible, too, to find someone like him who had such a rare role in the squadron because, as you say, he he would have been a fairly rare guy to, to find. And the, the fact that he's still around, uh, an undergunner, that's... You know, there can't be many of them left. No, I, and he has the most incredible memory. Um, when I asked right. him how he how he managed to operate the gun, he said there was a seat, but it was uncomfortable to sit on, and you couldn't see anything when you sat on it. So he spent the whole operation on his knees, shuffling around the <laughs> the, the hole in the bottom of the fuselage, um, trying to peer th in different directions out the bottom of the aircraft. And wow. he remembers it so vividly. I mean, sadly, he doesn't because he was with almost with a different crew every operation when he was at uh, with seventy five squadron. He he doesn't remember any of the individuals that he flew with. Right. Other right. than one one name, he said was a name that stuck in his mind, and that was Zinzan. And that and he was a pilot, and you probably come across the name as well because uh, of course I think Simon yep. Somerville's dad flew with um, with that pilot. It's one of those names that just stands out and it, and it sticks with you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Charles did remember the crew that he flew with on his first tour because he flew... 30, he th 30, I think he flew 33 operations on his first tour and then another 17 or maybe... I'm not sure. He, he flew a total of 50 operations. Wow. And, then, and he was so, when, he, when he was interviewed by the local newspaper, he was so modest. He said, well, I don't deserve a... A, a medal. I don't deserve anything. We just did what everybody else did, and he was right. typical of that generation. Really, he was modest. He was generous. He treated me and my wife to lunch at a local pub, and he wouldn't accept any money for it. 
and he, I mean, it, the, it was emotional because he reminded me of my dad or how my dad would have looked if he'd lived to be 95. I mean, Charles is an amazing 95-year-old. Wow. Fantastic. So just getting back to your dad, uh, he was the flight engineer. Where did he do his training? Was he already an engineer before he joined the Royal Air Force? Yeah, he left school at 14. Um, I mean, in hindsight, I mean, he was a very, a very um, interested man. He was interested in lots of things. He wanted to, he wanted to learn things. He became involved in, uh, he was fascinated by the space race during the 60s. Um, yep. uh, he was fascinated by machinery. He left school at 14 and uh, uh, became an apprentice motor fitter. Um, he did apply for the RAF in 1943 and was turned down. Uh, he was in the fire service after he uh, completed his apprenticeship, and I think that was probably why he was turned down. He spent quite a bit of his time in the fire service um, dealing with the after-effects of German bombing on the East Coast in the, the town that he grew up in, Grimsby. Um, so he, he was, I, I think the RAF saw him as a natural fit for the role of flight engineer. Okay, all right. And he would have joined the crew at the uh, OTU, the Operational Training Unit, wouldn't he? Um, it was actually the Heavy Conversion Unit, uh, RAF Langer. Ah, yep. Okay, yep, of course. And uh, he didn't join, the, 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 crew, the, the crew did join up at the OTU uh, in August 44, uh, but my dad joined them in December 44, and there is a, I mean, if, if you have time, there is another tragedy linked to that story, uh, which came out of uh, just just trawling the internet, really. My, when I looked at my dad's logbook, the first three flights that he took uh, were in December, just before Christmas, three days, 19th, 20th, and 22nd of December, or something like that. Yeah. And he flew with a chap uh, called Alban Chipling who was an RAF pilot who'd flown with um, number 429 Canadian Air Force Squadron. Um, he'd flown Wellingtons in 1943, completed a tour, and by the time my dad met him at um, 1669 HCU at RAF Langer, um, where he had a role in training air crew, um, but uh, he took my dad up for his first three flights in the Lancaster before my dad joined the, the, the Marlin crew. Yep. And when I just, just out of interest, I googled the name Alban Chipling because again it's an unusual name, and I discovered that two weeks before the end of the war in Europe, uh, Alban was killed in an air crash. Oh no. Um, and I just, I just kept coming across these really sad stories about. Uh, uh, what happened to these men during the war, and and some of yes. them right at the very end of the war, you know, days to go, and, and having completed a, uh, a a tour early on in the war as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unfortunately, that's what you do find, particularly with the when you start looking into a bomber squadron or bomber crews. There are so many stories where there's guys lost, and. So, sometimes the most ridiculous circumstances or the most sad circumstances and yeah it's 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 kind of daunting isn't it when you look back and you, you think about now we've got it so easy these days because there was death all around all the time back back in world war Two, even even outside of the actual combat zone so yes that, that's what struck me David, that that uh that when you think back to the 1940s aviation was only really 20 years old yeah and navigation uh, just flying an aircraft was a was a real hit and miss process apparently alban chiplin was killed with a with his co-pilot just doing a, a maneuver in a i think it was north american harvard aircraft uh, and it turned out with the with in the investigation that they failed to remove some ballast weights from the aircraft which uh, i didn't right. realize were carried if there was one pilot or one crew that, that they would carry the ballast weights, and if there were two crews, they should take the ballast weights out. Uh, yep. That they failed to do that, the aircraft was therefore not balanced properly, um, and that's what happened. Yeah, incredible! Just one little slip up like that, and that's that's it. They're gone. Yeah, 
Um, and the other, another thing related to um, 75 New Zealand Squadron uh, that I mentioned in the book, that um, when when the crew arrived at Meeple, they were, uh, the, the pilot was introduced to Mac Bajant, is that, is that the name? Who was yes. the commanding yep. officer for the squadron. Yes. And I understand he was the youngest, he, I think he was appointed commanding officer of the squadron 10 days before his 22nd birthday. Something like that. He was certainly very young. Yeah, and he, I mean, and had an incredible um, track record uh, with with the with the New Zealand Air Force. Indeed, indeed. And then, um, just reading through some information about him, it turned out that he he died a few years after the War of Cancer. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's it's tragic because when he when he was the CEO of Seventy Five Squadron in Britain, he they. The guys on the squadron considered it was like the golden era, because like the golden period for the squadron, because he was such a good commander. Everybody loved him; they thought he was brilliant, and they had been through several uh, COs before him, uh, mainly mainly British COs who nobody liked, who who, um, who who have really bad reputations. And I know that Mac was was really really um, looked up to by everybody, and. When they brought the squadron out to New Zealand in 1946, when it was transferred to the Royal New Zealand Air Force, um, he was the first commander out here too. And as you as you say, uh, only a couple of years later, he unfortunately got cancer and died. And he was still he's only what 27 or something. Then? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And that and that was just another one of the many tragedies that came up from the story. Uh, what struck me, Dave, about uh, the, the the COs that was that if there was a particularly tricky operation they would go yes <laughs> and i just i couldn't imagine that happening now senior officers um just wouldn't put themselves on the line in that way yeah it's uh, it is quite remarkable that, that and of course the co's crew were always the best of the best of, of their trade as well um so you'd have you know you'd have them leading you and, and you'd have i mean wouldn't that give you confidence to have the best guys oh, yeah like, like that with you it'd be it'd be great so yeah, it makes sense. So what, along the way, while you were researching, what were the most startling or surprising things that you uncovered with this story? It's really hard to, to say. Um, it, I think one of the most startling things that I discovered was the, the stories around the, uh, around, uh, the Mallon family, that um, Jack was killed during the Battle of Britain. I mean, this was something that really caused Bill a lot of anguish over the following years. I mean, Barry's son said that he, he felt bitter until his death about yep. the way that his dad, uh, his dad's brother hadn't been recognised uh, as a Battle of Britain hero. Um, the, 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 there's been quite a bit of controversy over who was awarded what clasp and who was on the roll of honour for the Battle of Britain. Uh, should it right. be just the fighter pilots, or should it be the fighter pilots and coastal command, or should it be certain? And in the end, they made a decision to include certain squadrons uh, and not other squadrons. And in the end, right. uh, when Bill Mallon, uh, uh, as a middle-aged chap, went to uh, the Air Force Museum at Wigram and discovered that his brother's name wasn't on the Roll of Honor, even though he'd been killed in October for 1940 during the period that was was counted as the Battle of Britain. He didn't qualify for being named because he wasn't in the right squadron, um, and it caused it, it caused Bill a lot of anguish. He wrote a letter to Wigram, and uh, he was disappointed with the reply because he basically said, "Well, that that's that, that's the situation as it as it is." Um, what what positive thing came out of it though was um, a, an exchange of letters that Bill had with. The mayor of the town, a small town near Calais in France, uh, a place called Guine. Um, and the mayor of the town had been active in the French resistance during the war. And for the yeah. rest of his life, and he is still alive, and uh, although he's not as active now, but for the rest of his life, he made it his mission to make sure the local people in France didn't forget those people who gave their lives for them and their freedom. And wow. Every year he organises a vigil at the uh, cemetery where Jack Mallon is buried alongside his crew. That's fantastic. That's really great. 
I've heard I've heard of other uh, cases in France where there's New Zealanders that get honoured every year by the French village where they where they lost their lives and and it always sort of it's quite humbling, isn't it, to think that people on the other side of the world have never been to New Zealand and didn't really know the guy who crashed near near or in their village uh, think so highly of them. So it's yeah, brilliant. Yes, it it is, and and another story that came out. Um, which I discovered and probably was more widely known in New Zealand because I think there was some coverage a few years ago, um, was Lorraine Gray, who was invited. Oh, yes. Do you know, do you know Lorraine? Yes, yes. Um, I put her diary up onto the onto the internet, uh, what her father's diary. Oh, she did, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I've been in touch with Lorraine and uh, she's really keen to, to, to push my book because she said it's a book it's a story, uh, even though her dad is only mentioned very briefly, um, it's a story, she said, that needs to be told and people don't shouldn't forget uh, those sacrifices yeah. that were made. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I've been humbled by Lorraine. I mean, she's she's been great, really helpful. Um, the yeah. reason that I, um, the, that I did get involved with the, her dad, Trevor, was that he was one of the eight... Um, he was one of eight uh, members of the squadron who went to New Plymouth Boys High School, which is ah, the school right. that the Mallon boys went to. Right. And, and that was the link um, that I had with, with Trevor. What I did was I went, I mean, I was absolutely gobsmacked uh, when I went to New Plymouth or, or contacted New Plymouth Boys High School and looked at their role of honour. And a small, a small boys school lost 227 old boys in five years. Yeah, I mean that is, and then I looked at Christchurch Boys High School, and I looked at a number of other schools, and the, the story was repeated across New Zealand, and a lot of them were in aviation, a lot of them were in the air force. It's, I got the impression that flying in New Zealand is much bigger than it is in the UK. I don't, I don't know whether it, whether it was or is, probably per capita, it could well be. I, I but um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because. You know, I've, I'm from Cambridge. I grew up in Cambridge, born and bred here, and I used to pass the cenotaph every day when you go into town. And I always used to think all those names were soldiers because that's what I was told. They, they were the soldiers who died in the war. Yeah. And, and then when I, one day I started looking into it, and this is the this is really the beginning of uh, my website, Wings Over Cambridge, which developed in, and Wings Over New Zealand forums uh, sprang from that. But when I looked into it on the World War Two list, there, there's more airmen. Then there is soldiers, you know, and um, and I think on my website now there's about fifty three, something like that, uh, Cambridge men who were in the air force who were killed during the or died, you know, yeah. died or, or were killed during the war, um, and some of them aren't even on the cenotaph, but the, you know I found them later, but I just couldn't believe that, and we were a small town then. There was only um, f what was it five thousand five hundred people. Uh, in Cambridge at the beginning of the war and um, you know in the first year of the war 500 of them had joined up and a significant number of them were in the Air Force uh, um, and I've you know I, I'm still finding people now uh, probably was it 12 13 years after I started doing research I'm still finding people from Cambridge I didn't know about uh, and occasionally one or two of them might be added to the cenotaph because you know and these are all airmen and they got killed in accidents or they got killed in action uh some of them died of disease in the pacific or things like that but it is absolutely amazing how these small towns all across the country um have such significant numbers of people who were involved and you know a, a good percentage of them died so yeah yeah it's, it's remarkable yeah one of the fascinating things that i learned from bill's interview was that uh, bill and his two brothers used to cycle down to the local airfield bell block airfield yep. uh, every, every sunday and they as little boys they developed this fascination with flying just watching these gypsy moths taking off in london uh, and you know, if they could have just foreseen that their interest in aviation would end up with only one of them surviving after the war. You know, it's it's those tragic postscripts that uh, that really struck me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, back in the 1930s, aviation in New Zealand was it was almost a craze. 
that there were, I mean, every boy uh, in New Zealand seemed to have some sort of interest in aviation. And, and you go to the newspapers, you know, newspapers for adults would have a section in it about making model aeroplanes every week sort of thing. So, you know, there were so many people doing that. And, and aviation now isn't treated the same way by the, the general media. We're, we're, we're much more, you know, sort of a, a sector. We're not we're not just part of the general media anymore, but they used to report on anything that happened. Any any aircraft that flew from one place to another, they, that would go in the paper with the name, name of the people and the passengers and the pilot and... You know, it was interesting stuff, and and you can see why so many of those boys who were sort of, you know, twelve year olds all the way through to you know, late teens in the in those nineteen thirties were swept up in it, and by the time the war came along, they all just went, "I'm going to go and join the air force." Yeah, yeah, a real adventure. I mean, Bill did say in his interview that up until he flew second dicky uh, in March forty five, up until that day. It was all a big adventure. Yeah. And when he came back after a really... I mean, I think Bill's worst operation was that one because they, I think they lost three aircraft... Or not, not the squadron, but three three aircraft were shot down on that operation. They came yeah. uh, under attack with by a fighter. Uh, and he suddenly realised that this is, <laughs> this is not a game. This is not right. flying for fun. Uh, and of course, then he went, had to go back and take his crew on, on, on their operations the following day. Um, but I think it was a big eye opener for Bill suddenly to realise it was uh, he might not make it. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever find out whether you, whether the crew had any particular rituals or mascots for good luck? Um, no, not really. No, I didn't. Um, my dad never mentioned anything. The only thing my dad mentioned was that he had the most incredible, um, stomach pains before he got on the aircraft. He was, wow. I mean, he, he just felt knotted up inside and he said it didn't, it didn't subside until he started the pre-flight checks and he got busy. But, uh, I know I, I can imagine because, you know, when I fly, I feel nervous getting on an aircraft. But I know I'm going to be okay. Uh, but I, t- I tell you what, I didn't mention, Dave. I should have mentioned that in 2014, I actually flew in the Lancaster. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I forgot to mention that. I mean, that that was again one of the highlights. There were so many highlights. But in 2014, you probably know the Canadian Lancaster yep. flew across and spent two or three months in Britain doing various air shows and flying with yes. the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight at uh, Lancaster. So the two f- remaining airworthy Lancasters flew together for on a number of occasions but for one week or maybe 10 days in august 2014 it was available for paying customers to have a flight like it does in canada i mean that that it, that's what it does all the time in canada yeah in hamilton um and my sister emailed me um a few months before and said do you know it's coming to britain and you can pay for a flight and i said no and, and i contacted um, the, the, the aviation museum in in hamilton and said, how do you get to, they said, you have to be a member. So I said, well, can I join? So they said, yeah, you, you can join and then you can apply for a seat. Uh, and I must have been in the first 48 hours because I think it, the, the seats went within 48 hours. Uh, wow. And it cost me an arm and a leg. I mean, it cost me, I think, over £3,000. Right. We just moved house and there was a little bit of equity in, <laughs> in the house move. <laughs> Um, and my wife said, I mean, she was great. She said, look, when will you ever get a chance? What have you always wanted to do since you were a little boy? When will you ever get a chance to do it again? So yeah. it's, it was the most amazing experience uh, of my life, really. And, and it was so different to flying in a, you know, in an airline and going on holiday. Uh, yep. It wasn't like flying at all. Uh, or maybe it was. Maybe it was more like flying because... Yeah, I, it didn't feel like you were airborne. You know when you get in a jet and you you accelerate, and then, yes, the, yes. then it, and then it goes into this steep climb. Yep. There was none of that. It just kind of got louder and louder and faster and faster, like like a like on an old, old truck. Yep. Uh, and then suddenly I looked out of the window and we had actually lifted off, and that was the feeling. Um, we'd lifted off the ground without that feeling of uh, uh, of acceleration. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. What, what, what a great experience. Yeah, and, the, and then I was able to, once we were airborne, we, we, I mean, what they'd done, they'd fitted five uh, old airliner seats to the side of the fuselage. 
Um, and uh, the five of us, I mean, there were only five people. I think they did three flights a day for 10 days. Um, so there weren't that many people who had the opportunity. But um, once we were airborne, we could stand up, we could go up and talk to the pilot. Um, and we could look out of the turrets. And uh, yeah, I mean, and, and interesting because it was in, it flew from um, uh, RAF Kermington or what is now Humberside Airport. Um, which used to be a, a bomber base, uh, and I'm from Lincolnshire. I, in fact, I was born and brought up about uh, 12 miles from RAF Kermington. So we flew okay. over a lot of landmarks that I recognised and a lot of the old airfields that were bomber bases during the war. Um, and it was a half-hour flight that I'll never forget. Wow. And um, were there other... Uh family of veterans or, or even any veterans on board with you as passengers there weren't um there were family there were no veterans although during the yep. week i think one or two may have flown okay i mean sadly the, the numbers are dwindling aren't they all the time oh absolutely i would have looked yeah. to have taken charles uh on the lancaster yeah. green i mean he he would have loved it i think yeah he did actually go charles went to um an raf museum in york and they have a Halifax there. Oh yes, yes. And you're not allowed to go on it because it's you know it's a, it's one of their prized possessions. But bec when they realised that he'd flown Halifaxes on his first tour, uh, they actually got, got a ladder out for him and helped him in. And he said it was Brilliant. just amazing to sit in one again. Wow. He was he was a mid upper gunner in, in during his first tour. Um, okay. Yeah. Great. Oh, that's excellent. Um. No. The period that your father was flying operations, the squadron was mostly doing daylight operations, weren't they? Over over Europe. Yeah, it was it was a combination. Um, I can't remember exactly how many day. Some of the some of them were night operations. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, I just find it really interesting how the general consensus, and particularly if you come from the American view is the RAF flew night uh, night operations and the Americans flew day operations. But, you know, the RAF squadrons were flying day operations from sort of 1940, well, 1940 to 41, and then 1944 to the end of the war. And they did a lot of daylight stuff. And it's, it's something that's been quite forgotten. That's right, yeah. I, I mean, uh, I'm just look, looking at the logbook now. Um, yeah, my, my dads were mostly, they, they flew in the morning, um, 11.45, right. 12.40 lunchtime, 10.35. Yes, there were, there were uh, out of my dad's nine operations, three of them were at night and the rest were during the day. Okay, well that's, uh, that, yeah, that in itself was quite interesting, only three night operations, so... It's, well, one of the things that I did um, in Jim Hayworth's letters to his wife, um, they went on a, a bidecker operation after the war to view the damage uh, caused by their bombing. Right. He, he made made an uh, amusing comment about the River Danube. He said he could see the Danube very clearly, uh, and it certainly wasn't the Blue Danube. He said it was a dirty brown <laughs> colour. Um, just going back to Jack Mallon, Dave, if that's okay. Um, sure. One of the things that came up quite late on in the project was um, I, I made contact with a number of um, um, people interested in the war in the, in the Netherlands, and a couple of them sent me photographs um, of that, that had been taken um, after aircraft had been brought down in the Netherlands and in France. Um, and he sent me a photograph of a Bristol Blenheim being guarded by two German soldiers. And if you look very carefully at the, the, the identifying letters on the side of the Blenheim, it turned out to be Jack Mullen's aircraft on the ground. Oh, wow. And it must have just been hours after it had been shot down. Wow. Uh, Bill's uh, sons, Barry and Kevin, were just uh, completely blown away by the, the fact that a photograph was of their uncle's aircraft. And the other photograph, that I've got, which is quite well known, I think, in in New Zealand, because it's a 75 Squadron aircraft. But it's um, I I'd seen the photograph, and I even put it on my blog. But it was only after a couple of years that I realised that the aircraft was the aircraft that my dad and the rest of the Malin crew were, crew were flying in 
on their final operation on the 24th of April. Um, and, I, and I couldn't believe that in this photograph, which is obviously very grainy, taken in 1945, and there are heads visible in the cockpit and the, and in the, and the, uh, and the turret. So you can actually see my dad and Bill, <laughs> these little black spots of their heads in the, in the turret, which was, I mean, oh, that, right. that photograph is really valuable to me now. Right, okay. So w which aircraft was that? Did, did, did it have any sort of uh, nickname? Or... Yeah, it was, well, they call it Willie. It was A-A-W. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was a combination of looking at my dad's logbook, looking at the operation record book, and contacting, um, I can't remember who it was I contacted, uh, somebody on the Wings Over New Zealand forum, uh, and they yep. confirmed that it was, that was the aircraft that was, that my dad was flying in. Oh, fantastic. Isn't that amazing that uh, these things turn up along the way when you start researching projects and, and things do always seem to come out of the woodwork that you don't expect. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, uh, when I started talking earlier this morning, it's, uh, I, I said that my expectations were not very high. In the end, I was completely um, amazed by what, what I did find out. It was far more than I ever imagined was possible. Um, yeah. And a lot of it is down to people who give their time freely uh, to other people who are interested. Uh, and it was down to the family, uh, the families of the crew who were generous with all of their memories and their uh, memorabilia. And it was a, a real joint effort to put this story together. It's actually really fantastic that all these years later that you've connected with all the the next generation the descendants of the crew and you you're all friends now isn't, isn't that amazing and it's funny that because i've written down on this on my notes this morning that uh, I, I feel i have friends in new zealand now and uh, yeah. I, i've never been to new zealand but right. uh, it's it's on it's on my list now uh, right I, we really need to come to new zealand oh definitely you've got to come you've got to come and uh, link up with all the 75 squadron uh people here there's you know as you probably well know and there's there's a very active association here and lots of people who remember the squadron fondly as well yeah that, that's right I, I did actually meet up in november there was a reunion of the 75 squadron association in the uk um, right. in november um and uh, i met up with keith springer who was another person that I'd been in touch with over the last couple of years because his dad, he contacted me because he'd seen my blog and his dad, Randall Springer, was posted to the squadron on the same day as my dad's crew. Okay. Uh, and they flew on some of the same operations. So he'd noticed the similarities between his dad's experience and my dad's experience. And I think his dad was quite active in the association uh, uh, later on, after, uh, quite a while after the war. Right, okay. But it was great to meet somebody from New Zealand, um, and I've met a, a, a few others who, who managed to come to these um, reunions in the UK, and it's been, uh, in fact, I even won a bottle of New Zealand champagne in a raffle, so that was, <laughs> I, still, I still got that. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, d were there any um, particularly sort of nasty operations that they flew, any real close shaves for them? Um, the, the, the way I, descri I describe it in the book is the, the way these chaps describe things that happen to them is just always so low key. Um, yeah. I mean, in the in the logbook for the twenty um, seventh uh, of March, nineteen forty five, an operation to Ham um, in Germany. Um, my dad wrote, "Port inner feathered, hit by flak," and. Um, and Bill wrote something, or Bill said something in the interview we gave uh, to, to the um, uh, New Zealand Defence Force. He said, he said something like, um, uh, yeah, we, we lost an engine, but it's no trouble flying on three. And it was yeah. <laughs> all very matter of fact, you know, the fact that they'd, uh, they'd, they'd had this near miss. And apparently, and my brother remembered my dad saying, on their very last operation, uh, they had a tyre blowout. Um, and they were all very low-key about it. The, um, uh, the emergency vehicles came out to make sure there was no problem. The aircraft ended up on the grass. Uh, yeah. But apparently, many years later, Dennis Ainstone, the rear gunner, had flashbacks uh, when he had a car accident. 
and his daughter said he was a, an absolute wreck. He was um, he, he sat in trapped in the car in a ditch, and he he it, it took him back to being in the rear of the aircraft when it was spinning round off the runway. Right. And she said that he he although he never talked about it, the the, the effect of his short period flying with the Air Force affected him for the rest of his life. She said he was uh, he was never the same really. Okay. Oh wow. Wow. So you you're in England. I should have said that at the beginning. You're in England, but uh, and your book's been published in England. But it, it is available here in New Zealand, isn't it? Yes, one of the problems with self-publishing, because I, I tried to get um, uh, publishers to publish it, but with, with being a first-time writer, um, it's not that easy. You, you know, if you've got a record of writing, then it becomes more easy. Uh, so in the end, I had to self-publish, and there are a number of different ways of self-publishing, and the one I chose, um, I'm not sure if it was the best choice, but they produced a, a, a reasonable product, uh, but it was Create Space, which is an offshoot of Amazon. Uh, okay. the, the downside of that, although the book, I really like the book, I think they've done a good job. Uh, the downside is distribution is not very good unless you live in the United States because the book, uh, Amazon is based in the United States. They do have printing facilities in the UK. So if you order a book in the UK, it's printed in the UK. If you order a book right. uh, in New Zealand, it's printed in the United States. Okay. Uh, so I've tried really hard to get the book into various outlets in New Zealand. The, the, I, I, it is available in Headley's Bookshop in Masterton. That's the one bookshop I've managed to get it into. Oh, um, wow. And it's also available in the various Air Force museums. The Museum of Transport and Technology have just ordered a second batch in Excellent. Auckland. The Omaka Aviation Heritage Centre ordered some very early on. And the Air Force Museum... Uh, in Wigram, ordered some books very early on as well. Excellent. Uh, I I am the distributor, but it's just I mean it would cost me twice as much as the cost of the book to for me to send it to New Zealand. So uh, sadly, the uh, the easiest, the more or less only way other than those outlets is to order it through Amazon, which is not ideal in New Zealand and Australia. Right, right. It, that's quite, oh, it's such a yeah, I can see what you're saying. It's it's a, a shame that it's not more accessible for the Kiwis because it is pretty much a half of it is a Kiwi story, isn't it? You, the, half the crew were Kiwis, and yes. yeah, yeah, it's most, a most Kiwi squadron. Most of the stories uh, are Kiwi stories. And yeah, I always imagined that the biggest uh, interest would be in New Zealand. Uh, there's been interest amongst uh, a number of local newspapers. Um, right. some, some of the bigger ones are not so keen. It, uh, they're, they're more interested in celebrities than uh, <laughs> than real people. Uh, yeah. But the local, the local where there's a where there's a local interest, where one of the say one of the crew lived, um, they've they've done stories uh, about that crew member or focusing on that crew member. The New Zealand Women Women's Weekly, who actually helped me find one of the crew members, uh, they're, they're right. doing a story um, in the next couple of months. I'm not sure exactly when. Well, that's that's great because that's um, you know a, a widespread public publication and um, is a well-known publication, so that'll get the story out there for sure. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it is um, it's a pity it's not easier to get the book into New Zealand, um, but mm. that that's I mean I've learned a lesson. If I was to do it again, and it's certainly it's not something I'm going to do again. But it, it, if, I, <laughs> if I had my time over, I'd probably find a different way. I did try and find a, a publisher in. New Zealand, who might take it on because it's it's quite possible another publisher could take it on because I own the the rights to the book, um, but we'll we'll see. I had an email this morning from um, some I haven't even had a chance to go through it yet, but it's from somebody who who does distribute books in New Zealand. So I'm hoping something will come of that. Okay, and the only other option is you might just have to come out here with a box of books and sell them somehow personally. Excess baggage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Vic. It's been great to talk to you about your, your book and about uh, your father's crew and your father. It's uh, a fascinating story, and it's, an, it's another one of those um, little pieces in, in the history of uh, 75 Squadron and, and the Royal New Zealand Air Force, really, because uh, every, every time that someone goes out there and does the work to put a story together like this, it, it gives us a little bit more of understanding of uh, our history and 
the history with the Royal Air Force as well that New Zealand has and those great connections. So thank you very much and congratulations on writing the book. Thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure. And I just hope that uh, the listeners out there will follow up and, and contact one of the museums or Headley's Bookshop and, and go and get a copy. And uh, if not, go on Amazon and, and get a copy and uh, uh, have a read. Yeah, that's, that's great, Dave. Thanks very, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Mm-hmm.